Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Just all right. We need to take it from the top about the Star Wars holiday special, nineteen seventy-eight. Yeah, we need a clean read on this one. <clears throat> Star Wars. Uh, it's, it's actually not the Christmas. It's, I believe it's the. Star Wars holiday special, very specifically, not the Christmas special. Mm, right. Mm, uh, I'm saying because I have realized that there is there. I think there are no jokes to be made. There, that well is dry. You uh, think so? About yeah. There's there's the the Star Wars holiday special has like been maybe the number one brunt of nerd jokes since it has came out. You know what I mean? Mm, I think like, I, I think Jar Jar Binks probably takes that, but I understand. Well, other other than other Star Wars related thing, yeah, that's a good <laughs> point. Until the prequels came out, that was yeah. the thing. It was that and Ewoks, and then, um, and then the prequels came out, and then you get like Jar Jar. You get that the diner guy, Dexter Dexter. What's his name? You know, you know who I'm talking Dax. about. You're talking nerd yeah. shit to me. You don't. You don't. Yeah, is it Daxter? I, it Star might just Wars. be Dex. Star Wars. I don't know if it's worth looking up. No, it's Dexter Jetster. Dexter Jetster. Of course. Okay. Um, I gotta say that that guy kind of rocks. I would go to that. Like the food looks good. I know it's supposed to be like a gross diner, but it looks like a nice place. He's wearing like a crop top. Did Wasn't you, there uh, a fashion forward? There's like a, a Twitter thing of like. Uh, or I don't know, like a reimagining uh, of like a fake backstory for Star Wars, where like he and Obi Wan were like lovers in a past life or something, like equating that diner scene to something in Moonlight and like people were reimagining it. Honestly, like better movie. Okay. Moonlight or the movie you're talking about? Uh, well, Moonlight is a better movie than anything we've talked about for the past <laughs> I, two minutes. I, uh, I, I the, maybe would agree. Yeah, a, a moonlighted version of that diner scene would, would of course be better, probably. Sure. Is that, um, that you know, that would be, I, if somebody has edited something, that would be very funny. I would like to check that out. Um, yeah, if you're listening, uh, shoot us shoot us a message with a, a link to that video, and we'll have we'll, <laughs> we'll watch it in a group chat uh, yeah. on mic, and it would be very fun for us. People came to hear our wonderful discussion of the, the 1974 film Claudine, but we're actually talking about Dexter Jetster uh, and Attack of the is it Attack of the Clones that he's in? Maybe the worst Star Wars yeah. movie. Yeah. Uh, Phantom Phantom Menace is still no, Phantom Menace is better. For it's me. best of the prequels. No man, there best are the there are so many more stretches of shit in Phantom Menace that are unwatchable, like actually unwatchable. It's can, boring, but it is not actively. There's cringy stuff in Attack of the Clones that I can deal with. Um, not to chalk it up to there's just like you know teach their own, but man, like getting through Phantom Menace again after years was really? just that was a real slog. Wait, for when's me. when's the last time you did it? Uh, I think before Rise of Skywalker came out, I watched everything again. Wow, wow. Okay, so well, that's more reason than me. So I don't, I don't want to. Yeah, I'm just. You know, I'm I don't want to lean point. too heavily, but but uh, you know, 
man, talk about Star Wars really is. I, like, I, I talked about the Star Wars Christmas special being a, an empty well. Star Wars in general, just nothing to talk about about Star Wars anymore. Just it, it it's, is all it's been all, done. It's all been talked about. All, and I mean, all eight movies are released. They've got commentary tracks and stuff. Like, you, there's nothing more to say. Okay, I get I the joke got, that you're making there. They've got yeah. Rogue One and uh, the Han Solo movie to, like, fill in any gaps that nobody really wanted to be filled in anyway. I so do. There, I think there is some comedic, uh, comedic potential talking about uh, the Han Solo movie. I, I, I think I have not heard too much just because nobody saw that movie. Made $300 million for a Star Wars movie, you know, yeah. something like that. Yeah. I, I thought it was fine. I think they're all, I, th- I don't know, all those are fine. I, but I also just, I, the fact that I have no strong opinion about it probably means something. Yeah, I, I really hated that solo movie, but but it's it's not, like, it really, defensively. Man. It's terrible. It's, ter- I mean, it's atrocious. It wasn't, it wasn't great. No, it was, it was terrible. Fine. Everything about it's terrible. It was fine. It's horrific. Horrifically bad. The, wor- the worst thing you a can fine do, film. It, I think. Making any sort of just, I, I wish, I wish more people, folks. In case you're wondering what's happening, uh, we're waiting for Harry to show up to talk about the 1974 film Claudine. This will, I assume, get edited out. Uh, but uh, <laughs> now the, the, the problem, the problem with Solo is it does the worst thing. Now we're talking about Star Wars, but the problem, the problem with with Solo is it does the worst thing you could do for any sort of sci-fi. Where it's just like, let's just explain minutia, just the just the most boring. Let's just give. I know everybody throws this complaint at the Star Wars movies, but it's really true where it's like, you just don't need to know, like the Star Wars movies originally got by on character archetypes that everybody just kind of understood. Like you just kind of know who Han Solo is. And it's like, you just, you just don't need to explain why his name is Solo. You know, uh, you don't need Darth Maul to come back. Right. You don't need, you don't need to remember the ship. This was like a weird, the guy has a sexual relationship with the ship, you know? Oh yeah. Well, yeah. honestly, honestly, man, like they made one of the most perfectly paced movies ever in Star Wars: A New Hope, a film that creates its own fucking universe, you know, expanses of the galaxy in I want to say like two hours flat, yeah. and like like you learn like, and you, you don't learn about, yeah. you don't learn everything, but it like it gestures at just enough. And and that's yeah. perfect, and it tells like a perfectly well-contained story, and they've just been trying to like match that ever since, or something, or maybe it like went over their heads that like oh actually this thing, the fact that we are just gesturing at all of it uh, is you know like what makes yeah. it so special. You don't need to make the subtext text. You don't need to like color in stuff that like didn't need coloring in in the first place. But I mean it's all it's all making money. So that's that's what we're all here for, right? Right? Yeah. Yeah, that's uh folks, uh Diane Carroll was in the Star Wars Christmas special. Uh Diane Carroll that is actually I don't know if we'll talk about it. talking about this, right? That's how we got on the Star Wars thing. Co- uh yes yeah well we yes while we had watched it we had talked about maybe doing some sort of holiday showing because i have never seen it uh but yes diane carroll apparently in the star wars holiday special i have to imagine that is the second uh film that she is in with uh james earl jones alongside wait james earl jones is is in this i thought this star wars holiday special thing was like an off-brand like maybe one or two appearances by the actual cast, but mostly, I don't know, side story dog shit. It's not. It's like both barrels. Uh, let, let me look. Star Wars 
holiday special. I keep saying Christmas special, holiday special. No, they got they got they got that. Yeah, James Earl Jones in it. Yeah, they got the actors back for like weird, weird little skits, and some of it was like there's some weird puppets and animation, and um, there's like the Wookiee home plan. It's it's I've seen clips, you know. Um, yeah, James Earl Jones is in it. She is in it. So. That's so the second be, film. So it's that they probably one one percent good, is what it is. Yeah, I mean she she's she's great. We we I don't know how much we were going to talk about her career on the the episode. You know, if you've but, got something to share, let's. Sure, I mean, so she's she's her importance to acting uh, cannot really be. So she she um, uh, Julia was a TV show. I have not seen it. Television series. A lot of people say it's the the first film that had a like non stereotypical uh, like black woman uh, as a character. She was a she was like a nurse or a doctor in that show, and she had a, a kid that she was raising. Um, and it was like the first of its kind, uh, supposedly. Um, and she was Dang. Uh, she was the first black woman to win a Tony, I believe, uh, as well. Um, and then we'll, we'll obviously talk about Claudine as well, which is an important movie. Uh, and her performance in that is, is very important and great as well. But yeah, no, she, uh, she, she, she died in 2019, actually, of, of breast cancer. Uh-huh. So rest in peace to Diane Carroll. She uh, is very good, um, not just in this movie, but had a long-ass career that unfortunately included the Star Wars Christmas special. Um, talk well, about this for 10 minutes now. Yeah, back, uh, back to me. You know what else is really good? What's that? Our, our listeners are very good for <gasps> tuning in once again to Trilove, a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find the Trilon at Trilon Cinema and at Trilon.org where you can also get tickets to showings of movies there. My name is Jason Daphnis. I'm the expert on Funky, and you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I'm Cody Narvison. I'm just trying to give my neighbors something to gossip about. And you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Jason did take mine, which I guess is pretty obvious in, in hindsight because it's a very good one. But I just want people to love me. I'm Harry Mack, and you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. Uh, and I'm Aaron. Uh, I, you know, I'm not even going to pick a specific quote. I'm just going to say whatever quote you insert here uh, in your little mind uh, version of this episode, just say it in the voice of James Earl Jones. Uh, but you can find me on Twitter at RB, please. That was pretty good, Aaron. I actually, I respect that Thank a you. lot. Thank you. Appreciate uh, it. So today we're going to be talking about the 1974 film Claudine. That is all I'm going to say about it. I'll let Aaron take it away with the patented Aaron Grossman summary. Thank you. Uh, Claudine, 74, as Jason mentioned, was directed by John Barry. Uh, Claudine tells the story uh, of a woman named Claudine, played by Diane Carroll. Uh, She is a hardworking black mother of six who juggles her time taking care of her children and working as a housekeeper for an upper class or middle upper class uh, white family. Um, She's also a uh, welfare recipient, spends a lot of her time trying to kind of hide the small pleasures of her life from an often visiting and kind of particularly um, nosy social worker. She falls in love with a garbage collector uh, nicknamed Roop, who is played by James Earl Jones. Um, but the relationship is, is threatened uh, by the hectic nature of Claudine and Roop's own lives. Um, the film is a minor hit, uh, grossed about $6 million on a $1 million budge- budget, which is, is pretty, you know kind of a modest hit at the time. Um, it was praised uh, kind of on release for showing a um, dimension of American life that many Americans, uh, specifically a lot of uh, black Americans, uh, were familiar with, but had been kind of relatively ignored by Hollywood. 
um, to put kind of this film into context with uh, a lot of other kind of black film productions at the time. It came out in 74. Um, Shaft had came out three years earlier in 71. Ganjin Hess, another trial of favorite, had come out the previous year in 73. So this film kind of uh, was portraying a, a kind of, um, for a lot of people, typical uh, kind of American, black American lifestyle um, during the height of, of black exploitation cinema. Um, should also be noted that Diane Carroll was nominated for Best Actress at the Academy Awards. Um, she lost to Ellen Bernstein for Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Uh, maybe fair, but uh, uh nomination there. Um, also worth mentioning is the film soundtrack written and produced by the great Curtis Mayfield and performed by Gladys Knight and the Pips. Uh, Jason, that's what I got. What do you, what do you think of the movie? I think that I really enjoyed that summary. Uh, but more to the point of the film, I really enjoyed, I watched this with Aaron, um, and then Cody and Harry, I'll be interested to know what, how it played at the actual trial on, but I really, really enjoy It's another movie where it's kind of in the vein of like Wanda where it's strange to say that I enjoyed it, but it does have overall a pretty heartwarming, um, you know, sweet tone. It's billed as like a musical and a comedy and a drama. Uh, I don't know that it's cleanly fits into any of those. Um, it feels more, I don't know, subversive than a lot of those do. Uh, but I like how it goes out of its way to portray like a more real image of what life on welfare was like, uh, you know, more or less is with any sort of financial assistance, especially like Aaron said for, for black Americans, um, you know, that material conditions are actually a significant factor in one's happiness. Um, you know, they're very much can determine somebody's quality of life rather than, uh, you know, like, like you said, mentioned Aaron, um, this came in the context of, you know, sort of height of black exploitation films being produced. And it was after a few of the staple ones, including like Blackula had already come out. Um, and this like lands on the scene with sort of, I, I hate to say that it's like an anti or not a black exploitation film because it like it, even black exploitation films portray those things, it, but like they are just very heavily fantasized and empowering in a lot of those black exploitation films where, you know, the means of their existence are, you know, leveled against them, but they find some way to overcome. They are, you know, it's a revenge fantasy or they're you know, super heroic, or it's a subversion of, you know, tropes that are typically uh, dominated by white, ca- white actors and white directors, et cetera. But it's like this movie decides not to do any of that. It doesn't throw any of those, um, you know, colors into the mix of, you know, is there anything here that's going to give them another recourse? Like, is there anybody who shows up in their life that fixes anything? Not really in this movie. It's kind of unflinchingly a portrayal of that. Um, I see your hand up, Aaron. I'm, I'm okay taking an, uh, an interjection if you want, had something to say. Well, yeah, I was just going to say I was going to bring this kind of up during my own thoughts on the film. But, um, you know, I, I did mention that this film kind of stood out in, uh, you know, during the kind of the rise and the, the height of, of black exploitation cinema. This film and also, uh, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of the performances that Diane Carroll did earlier in her career were notable as like standout, like some of the first uh, portrayals of uh, black people, but in her case, specifically black women, just kind of living everyday lives that were outside of the, um, you know, uh, the fantasies uh, often associated with black exploitation films. Obviously, those films deal with a lot of harsh realities. Um but uh, Vin- Vincent Canby writing for the New York Times when this film came out, he wrote that um, I think maybe a little ahistorically, but he wrote that it is also the first major film about black life to consider the hopes, struggles, defeats and frustrations of blacks who aren't either super cops, super musicians, super studs, super pimps or super pushers. Um, again, maybe that's not 100 percent accurate, but that is mm-hmm. onto something and that um, black performers in kind of large motion pictures were often playing, uh, you know, in white 
productions were often playing stereotypes. Um, and even in um, film productions that were, if not produced by, by black people were, you know, a lot of the entertainers were majority black, right. a black audience. Most of those, you know, entertainers were still, uh, you know, playing parts that, that kind of fit uh, a certain vibe um, of, you know, black exploitation and, and, related films so that that's part of why this film is like so important i think so jason yeah. great job hitting on that no, for sure i'd agree like i think this movie textually like reads that too there's that scene where um it's the first date between this is going beyond the scope of my top thoughts but like it's supporting that um the, the first scene of their date uh, of between roop and claudine where they're just like listing off the stereotypes that, you know, best describe them to the world, you know, the lazy welfare queen type that Claudine is seen as by so much of society, the like deadbeat garbage man who ignores his kids that, um, Roop is seen as it's just like, it, it owns those in a lot of ways in a way that's not like, it doesn't imply that owning those things gives them power. It's just a recognition that helps you like relate to another person who is also seen that way. And, you know, that I think that is like the core of the relationship and what makes it up between Claudine and Roop to me anyway. Um, and, and also, that being, and, Oh, sorry. No, yeah. Uh, we, we can, I was just going to say also to, to add on to that. Uh, I think, you know, the stereotypes of like welfare queens and whatnot is something that a lot of people associate with the Reagan uh, administration that wouldn't happen for another eight years. Uh, 82. Yeah. 82, 82. Yes. 82. Uh, no, Yes, uh, wouldn't happen for another eight years, I believe. Um, but you know, this is this was also in seventy four. This was during it would have been Nixon, Gerald Ford. Uh, so it would have been during Republican administrations. I think a lot of people just associate the the negative aspects of like welfare stereotyping with Reagan. But this is like a strain of like conservative uh, financial economics that was like you know happening quite a few years before that even which is I think, mm -hmm. important to note i think that's like wildly important to the plot and to like the purpose of the movie is that this is a system inherently that is antagonistic to the people it is supposedly helping that it is you know actually a force to be like destroyed not um you know reconciled or reformed uh it it's got got a really strong message in that direction i think but um that I will let be the off ramp to my thoughts. Uh, and I'm knocking on Cody's door because I think we've got a scheduled date for tonight, but I don't know if he's still if he's gonna, like stay awake for it. Um, but uh, Cody, your thoughts. Oh, Hey, sorry. Yeah. Um, I'm right here. Um, thanks for, I heard your knocks loud and clear, Jason. So thank you for that. Um, yeah, I knew next to nothing about Claudine prior to seeing it at the Trilon. Uh, other than the fact that the that uh, Criterion had recently put out a 4K restoration of it, but I had such a genuinely great time watching it. Um, the theater, uh, the the theater crowd weren't a lot of people in the theater with us, which is a tremendous bummer. Um, hopefully, folks listening to this, well, if you're listening to this, you've probably already seen it, but um, I don't know. Tell your friends because this movie rips. Uh, I love the the taut structure of this movie and how it serves both this group of characters as well as the like the different layers of injustice that the film is kind of looking to touch upon having two strong well-defined uh personalities in claudine price and rupert marshall come together over the course of what's essentially the first act using the foundation of their relationship to then explore things going on in their community through the eyes of the price children um in particular rather the price children a lot of it goes through them and then using the third act uh to witness how the sort of inevitable weight of these things 
crushes people, even people as sturdy and, um, you know, kind of bulletproof uh, as Roop um, coming to, you know, we come to a resolution that doesn't feel resolved as much as it feels like a, like a reluctant acceptance of their reality. All of it, even, and kind of like Jason was talking about, even the parts that were tougher to watch, they went down really smooth because of how tactful everything felt. Um, and, and one of the scenes that really, uh, we're talking about a few specific scenes. One that really unlocked this movie for me was the conversation at the government office where in a, a explain like I'm five kind of way, they sort of lay out the cause and effect of certain decisions and living arrangements. And from that hearing about the, like, you know, the quote unquote incentives to do or not do certain things or live or not live in certain ways. Um, and having those things collide with how their government actually wants them to live uh, and, and, you know, pulling back the curtain in that way and seeing how we are very much having those conversations right now um, as lives that have been upended as a result of the pandemic are looking to sort of gauge what's next. And we have government aid at the ready, which can be distributed for those without work. And if millions of people instead choose to work at their jobs that are underpaying them, they will in fact be making less than they would if they were receiving aid. And then you have our current administration that's saying, well, if you don't work, we'll cut you off from this aid entirely. Uh, A lot of finger wagging. And in the end, we've been living in the same broken system forever. And we all know this. And the movie does this at other times as well. But hearing it spelled out in that specific way in that particular scene was, um, yeah, like oddly therapeutic, even if it was also very depressing. That is... um, yeah, I, I know I wasn't around for when uh, y'all covered Wanda, but I, I think I get the vibe that you're, you know, that you're referring to. Um, it's, it felt strange, but it also felt really good. Um, but I wouldn't say as a whole, this movie is depressing. It cuts a lot of humorous moments against scenes wherein these characters are struggling, but it was very engrossing. I feel like I could easily revisit this um, sometime down the road. It was a really, really excellent surprise. Um, at this point though, I am just stalling. Harry's running uh, a little late for the party. We're, we're, we're throwing him. I think I'm essentially doing the same transition as Jason. I kind of panicked, um, but Harry should be here any second. Um, I don't think the crippling weight of his self-doubt should keep him much longer. Um, maybe we could just wait another few moments. Oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that Cody, but I am oh, here. Okay. Uh, n- nevertheless. Thank you. Um, yeah. I, I'm really glad that we all arrived where we did. You've, you've said a lot of what I wanted to cover already. Um, I was a little bit worried about this because I, I came out of this movie considering it kind of a minor masterpiece. Um, I think it's a really, really amazing movie, especially for its time and place. Um, and it was not received particularly well. I think maybe it was ahead of its time. Maybe people weren't ready for it. Maybe it turns out that the apparatus surrounding critical film uh, analysis, especially in 1974, are racist, like fucking go figure, right? But um, yeah, I think this movie is incredible. Um, I think it's it's like the kind of thing that I think everybody should watch, especially um, neoliberals, I guess, but especially anybody who's interested in sort of like the history of um, the American institutions of uh, welfare and child support and the way that those mechanisms are and always have been um, constructed in order to punish and harm the people that they are purporting to help. Um, I think this movie does a unbelievably clear and full-throated version of demonstrating that. Um, there are multiple speeches in this movie where the characters explicitly address um, the source of their um, uh, the source of inequalities and where they came from and how impossible it is to live within these systems and specifically how these systems, they 
through the, the punishment that they inflict, they convert what should be the best things about people trying to live their lives, right? Like falling in love, having children, loving your children into something to be ashamed of and guilty about and hateful of. And the reason why that, that, um, conversion process exists is just to punish people, just to hurt them. There is no upside. There is no sort of instruction. Um, there's sort of a, a neoliberal line that is directly addressed here where it's like, well, you're in this position in the first place because of the choices you made. And if you made better choices, you would get out of this position. And um, therefore, if you can start making those choices now, you'll be able to rise out of this. And that's what this punitive system is doing is trying to teach you to make better choices. This move does a really great job of assaulting that viewpoint and demonstrating how it doesn't actually work and demonstrating how that viewpoint and that entire philosophy um, is rooted in a hatefulness for um, black people and for uh, the marginalized and the uh, economically disenfranchised in general. Um, that is something that definitely crosses uh, party lines. I mean, I think liberals are exactly as... Um, guilty of this as conservatives are. They're maybe just a little bit less honest about it, right? About how they actually feel about the people that are receiving welfare. Um, this movie does a great job of demonstrating that. And it sort of uses the genre trappings of a screwball comedy in order to make that point, right? Like if you think about what a, from like um, a very elemental perspective, what a romantic comedy is, it's something where you're um, you've got two characters who are in love and want to be in love. And then there is a conflict that prevents them. And the movie is about navigating that conflict and learning about these characters and learning about why that conflict exists in the process to say something. This is a movie that says like, what if the conflict is just what the actual conflict of basically poor inner city black people who are struggling to get by and who are on welfare, their actual conflicts. And look at how that takes something that should be simple and should be beautiful, like two people who falling in love, like a, like a good mother raising her children and makes it into this terrible, complicated, ugly thing, just because the system wants it to be that way. Like it wants to inflict that on these people. And the movie has no good answers for this, right? Like it, it doesn't, it doesn't really hold out hope for a, for a brighter future. It just depicts that. And I think that, that, that amount of bravery and the effect that it has on these people, the way that it turns their, their good impulses into negative impulses, right? Which is where a lot of the most uncomfortable scenes of this movie come from and the way that themselves, their, their negative impulses then further reinforce the stereotypes that are leveled against them that put them in this situation in the first place. And therefore the system perpetuates, right? And in the end, it's all about a couple of people getting paid more money off of the, the backs of these people. Um, it's a really, really poignant movie, right? And I'm, I, it's the kind of thing I wish I had seen because maybe I would have understood um, the welfare state and I would have understood the sort of parasitical nature of government, quote unquote, support um, earlier in my life rather than having to come to it now. Um, but I so I, I guess I agree with every, what everybody's saying. And I just think it's a really important movie in terms of um, in terms of translating a real system and problem of inequality into a fictional story that can depict the truth of those things and their effect on people in a really poignant way. It's sort of like, it, it's a really powerful example of, um, of what fiction can be used for, in my opinion, and kind of makes this like in a central American movie in my mind. Right. And I guess that's it. So I found it startling that it wasn't received well. And I, I'm glad to hear that you all sort of ended up where I was or closer to it. 
Yeah, I um, I'll, I'll kind of echo. I'm going to go, I guess, a bit off my notes here to kind of respond to something that that Harry said. Hey, Harry, you talked a little bit um, about the. Uh, I don't know, kind of the tone of this film is, is kind of standing out a little bit from what, what you called like the, the typical kind of romantic comedy. Yeah. Um, I think that there is a uh, something that I, I think I responded a little negatively to, maybe even subconsciously while watching the film um, was kind of this film kind of gives you this, this weird kind of tonal whiplash um, where th- there are scenes that are very comedic while at the same time being very sad. Something very sad is happening, but it's done in a very slapstick kind of way. Uh, and, and that happens quite a bit through the film. Um, and that kind of made me a little bit uncomfortable while I was watching it. Um, but I actually kind of came around on it. I think that that, that tonal whiplash is kind of part of the point and that the, the spaces that these characters inhabit are, um, they have to serve multiple different um, needs, right? So the space where you, uh, uh, you know, especially when you're living with your six children um, in this kind of small apartment, the space where you're happy is also the space where you're sad, where you're having an argument with somebody the next moment, right? Um, it's the same space that the the social worker is going to come through and kind of investigate uh, when she shows up later in the movie a few times, right? Um, and I think that that's kind of the point. Um, th- th- this movie um, gives you the sense of claustrophobia, uh, as you watch the, you know, kind of the spaces that these characters inhabit. Um, this is not just a movie about welfare, about, uh, you know, black life in America, about, a, you know, kind of a budding romance. I think this is also a movie about confined spaces and about privacy, um, a lack of privacy that comes with being uh, poor in kind of, uh, you know, the, being a large family uh, or, you know, medium large family in a very small New York apartment. Um, you know, there's people just kind of coming in and out of the bathroom, right? Um doing whatever in the bathroom uh, constantly. And everybody always knows what's going on in there. Um, Claudine cannot even get away from this. Uh, it, it roots apartment. People call constantly while they're in bed together. Um, you know, members of her family call to complain that one of the kids is maybe masturbating in the bathroom. Uh, one of Roop's uh, ex-wives call for, for some reason, or a woman that he, he knew call for some reason. Um, they kind of can't find a space to be alone. Right. Um, there's a social worker, of course. Uh, he, he, even the social worker uh, says that, you know, she she's kind of saying, hey, we, we saw a man coming out of here. And Claudine says, like, I knew it was my neighbor who was snitching on me. Right. Um, so there's this this claustrophobia and this this lack of like personal space that infects everything about this movie. And I think that's part of where the tonal kind of um, uh, not misfires, but like the, the whiplash that I described earlier comes from. And I think that's actually a feature of the movie. Um, and it's something that I really came to appreciate. These are people who are, uh, you know, kind of in a bad lot in life in a lot of ways, but still have, uh, you know, a degree of character uh, in personality. And that comes through in kind of everything they do. And it, it, it comes out, even though it may feel not, you know, uh, like a, a normal film in a lot of ways, I think comes out feeling more realistic uh, in the end. Um, so I, yeah, I, that's just, I guess one aspect of the film, but I, I really uh, liked and appreciated this film. This is a classic Trilon movie that I probably would not have seen if it wasn't on the Trilon schedule. So happy to, happy to watch it. Yeah. You said two things that I really responded to. And I, I thought that was really insightful. Um, one, I think that it's that, that privacy and the fact that this is also a movie that's essentially about a surveillance state, right? Like these are people who their livelihoods, the fact that they're able to live at all is contingent upon a continued sustained performance. They have to act a certain way. They have to model 
um, certain values and behaviors that were um, given to them by the state in order to quote unquote deserve the aid they're receiving. Um, this is a movie about how fucked up that is, about the idea that these people should have to model these um, these lifestyles and these values that were that were given to them and that have nothing to do with their actual lives, right? Like, and and pointing out the impossibility of that, the impossibility of living according to this narrative when the narrative was constructed for people who aren't you and people who are in circumstances that are not yours. Like a, you know, they've they've said in both both in the sort of philosophical ideological sense and in the literal material sense, like it is not actually possible for Claudine to live the way that the um the social worker mandate she does, she wouldn't make enough money to survive and feed her kids. So she has to cheat the system. And the reason she has to do that is because she's not getting enough money from welfare to survive. And if she got a job, she would lose her welfare money. And so she wouldn't have enough money to survive. And if she, you know what I mean? And if she, if she tried to, if she had a a man, if she got support from someone else, she would lose her welfare money and she wouldn't have enough money to survive. So the movie does a really great job of depicting the impossibility of that system, as well as the, how the fact that um, you have to live inside that impossibility and inside that performance creates this ever present surveillance tension that just wears away at people. And again, it, it corrodes what should be their, their best traits and makes them into something that ultimately has to be uglier. Right. And it's, it's because they're, they're being twisted and warped by these expectations. Um, I think the most interesting place and it, it affects everyone's characterizations uniformly, I think, but, uh, especially Roop's right. Because Roop is also this very interesting examination of masculinity itself and about how this affects not men, but also women are uh, not women, but also men in, in this situation where like Roop is a guy who really values his independence and his freedom in large part because he equates that with a version of masculinity that he feels he has to be. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he talks a lot about how men have to be the breadwinner. He talks a lot about how men have to have to sort of portray this, um, this strength, this sort of like vision for the future. And yeah, a big part like, of the tension. Yeah, go ahead. I just want to add color to that. Like the way that he stands out to Claudine is by like enforcing a little bit of like manhood upon her, the house, the other, the only house where she works, right? Like he's, he, um, tell, he like tells him off, right? The house, right. the homeowner comes out and he's left too much garbage in his can and Rupe comes by and he's like, Hey, take, you know, separate it. I can't lift that. That's a hundred pounds. You know, it's that moment of like standing up to authority and like tr- quote unquote traditional manhood that makes him even stick out to Claudine. In the yeah, first place. well, and, and like in the classic romantic comedy sense, right? It's kind of an opposites attract thing where she's attracted to everything that he has that she could never have. Where he seems to be this very free spirit. He seems exactly. to be this person who is who is deeply independent, who loves his independence, um, and who is so confident and embodies this sort of spirit of of freedom and of self-determination that she wants so desperately, right? Where it's just like, well, we can just have this thing together. And she has never been able to have that because she has been punished by the state for her entire life, basically, right? For the, for having the the gall to have children in the first place. Right. Um, And so you're right. Exactly. But, but that also ends up affecting, like we, we learn that Rupe is not actually as free as, as he appeared that, that, that performance was itself something that he felt he had to affect in order to be a man. And that's what keeps him from Claudine, right? As he feels he's not worthy of taking care of his, her children because he can't be there for them because he's let down children in the past, um, through mistakes of his own quote unquote mistakes. Again, uh, the movie does a pretty good job of demonstrating how they're not really mistakes because there aren't any options. There is no good option. So how can you make a mistake when all of your choices are just 
quote unquote mistakes. Um, but I would say that 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 really factors into the tonal whiplash in the really specific thematic way that this movie is converting what should be beautiful into something that is scary and ugly and sad, right? This movie itself is basically like, hey, what happens when you take a traditional romantic comedy and you apply um, – class and racial uh, awareness to it, right? And it's like, it turns out that falling in love in America when you're on welfare is a very difficult thing because it's a disaster, right? And the reason it's a disaster is by design. It's because they don't want you to do that. They don't want you to be able to have this life. And so like this movie becomes what it's, it's a, a traditional rom- romantic comedy applied through that system. And what comes out on the other side tells us so much about what that system is and about the fact that it's a system that's about punishing people and about making sure that they can't have this life, that they can't have these dreams, right? And therefore, like... I think the uplifting part of this movie that Jason, you alluded to is that like somehow, some way black people have it anyway. Like they're, they're able to fall in love. They're able to care about each other and care about their children, even though the entire world is against them, right? Like this entire system wants them to end up where they ended up at the end of this movie, which is in a cop car, you know? And it's like, somehow they're still there together and they're still united, but like, there is no good way to do it because there is no way to actually achieve any sort of dream that the idea that there are good choices that you can make that could lead you out of this. The idea that there, there is some version of the American dream that still is still available to you. It is given to you in order to make you more subservient and only that, right? Like there is no actual attainment. There is no winning. This is what the movie shows us, but there is still a a version, however, sort of like rudimentary or however, um, uh, timid it must be of being able to be yourself within that, you know? And I think that this movie does a really great job of, of demonstrating that. Um, and I, I wanted to make one more point about the script um, because I think it, it really um, coincides with what Aaron was saying in a good way, in a way that made me uncomfortable too. But first I want to hear what Cody has to say. Oh, sure. Um, I, I really just wanted to add uh, a little bit more to, you used the word performance a few times that was in my notes as well. And, like the idea of performance in this movie and these people's lives that like definitely first and foremost came through with those scenes with the social worker. But the more I think about it and the more you were kind of talking about it, Harry, I think like the like performance as a lens for like viewing a lot of the goings on of like our two main characters and and everything else. Like I I think a lot of things fall into play. I don't know. I think it makes for a more, um, fascinating read um, like the especially when you kind of pit the sort of performances um, against one another I think a lot of them act as as mirrors for each other like when um, Cla- like the first scene with Claudine and Roop when he's trying to pick her up she's um, as a as I think you said Harry like her sort of like latching on to a certain bravado of his or a certain a certain kind of performance that he was maybe putting on when he was talking to her employer and then we get the scene um afterward with them on their first date where those walls kind of come down she like makes it clear like she's a very tired uh mother she's a very tired parent and uh, like they begin to see like a little bit more of each other um this first scene in her household with all of her children was 
uh, an immaculate orchestration of chaos that feels even better in retrospect when the social worker comes around and like the performance or rather for the first time and the performance that they're putting on for her, like essentially equates to like these, like you don't really hear anything from these children uh, other than a few kind of like scripted lines that they've rehearsed over and over. Um, you get that feeling when um, that um, I forget her character's name, but when the social worker comes around again and like, like seeing those two dynamics against each other and like Roop later, the, the film kind of uh, pivots to, to his interiority um, quite a bit in the latter half, but like seeing him again, that sort of bravado, him sort of uh, vocalizing how everything is as this movie is doing, not necessarily offering up any clear solutions because there aren't really any, but like hearing him say how everything is him complaining about it, him like ragging on the situation and then getting it, you know, once that performance is kind of brushed aside and, and we peek behind the curtain, he eventually comes to let it be known how much these things actually do hurt him. The sort of like, you know, cracks in the armor, so to speak. And once we learned that we don't need to, or rather once these characters learn that they don't need to perform for each other and that the performances that they're putting on for the people who are sort of trapping them and contributing to that claustrophobia, once we learn that that's, you know, once we get past that facade, we can start to have those real conversations and not to, I guess part of it is me trying to offer a rationalization of like uh, a continued rationalization of why this movie feels so good. I mean, uh, I'm inclined to think that part of it is maybe the relief that we can like get past that facade and the relief that we are able to witness these conversations being had is in its own way. Like it, it, it maybe contributes to why that all feels better, uh, you know, to take that all in. Um, it feels better than maybe, other works where we're having those conversations, but there's no, like, there's no sort of, um, on-ramp, uh, on-ramp rather into it, you know, like we, we get that very clearly constructed sort of, it's like, Hey, these are some vibrant people. These are the lives they lead. Okay. Now let's actually like, now that, now that they're established, now that we know who these people are, you know, we took a very like efficient 20, 30 minutes to get that now, like now we're going to, through their eyes, get an idea of, I don't know. We're going to, we're going to talk about this a little bit. And like, again, I'll, I'll use the word therapeutic again, because I love using that word, but like, I don't know, maybe that's where some of that comes from, but I'm just, I'm speculating. Yeah. I think that that's a really good point. And there's a really interesting thing that this script does that <clears throat> sort of belies that, which is that I would, I would consider this script like, uh, characterized by a uniform radical honesty, right? And in honesty, in some ways that can feel almost off-putting, I'm thinking of specifically the first scene with Claudine and Roop, where when Claudine resists his advances at first, he alludes to the fact that she's probably on welfare. And he, he says something about how she probably shouldn't be working. And it would be, it would be a shame if somebody were to find out. That struck me really, really poorly, right? Because it was mm -hmm. like, wait a minute, like this is our ostensible protagonist. And now he is threatening our main character. And that's a, in order to sort of coerce her into going out with him. And at least in my, in my mind, in my stupid sort of like white traditional uh, sense, I was like, that's what's happening here. And that was discuss That was scary to me. That's not really like later on in the, in the movie, you sort of get to know what they're doing, which is that was less a threat than it was sort of a 
and I, I hate to use this term, but like a dog whistle to demonstrate that he understood her circumstances, right? And this is a movie about characters who are demonstrating their understanding of one another and of one another's circumstances, right? And so we get this movie that's extremely honest, where everyone speaks to each other without any of the sort of bullshit performance um, that we're used to, which is why there's sort of a great irony at the heart of this movie that there is this performance, right? Or rather that there is this imposed performance upon these people who, in order to perform, they have to see it as performance, right? These are people who have to see life the way it is. And in a way that that other people like ourselves, maybe, or like the welfare woman, she doesn't have to. She doesn't have to actually confront the material realities about what it means to be a person and what it means to be in love. And it looks ugly to us, or it can look ugly to be so honest about what you actually need. But that's only because we haven't had to do that because it's like we've we've been able to live in the sort of privileged bullshit world. Whereas these characters, they have to do things like um, like Claudine and Root, most of their first date is spent talking about how this is such a terrible idea, right? About how they're wrong for each other, about how they both have kids and they both made quote unquote mistakes and how this couldn't possibly lead to anything good. And it's sort of like the, there's this long tragedy. It reminds me of uh, of If Beale Street Could Talk, right? Where like If Beale Street Could Talk is similar. Oh, yeah. It's like a love story that's just about how impossible it is to be in love and be black in America, right? It's like, and in about how in order to do that, like you have to introduce all of these other things that no no normal sort of like circumstance, no no person should have to worry about in the face of love and in the face of living, right? Like being a parent in America is for Claudine is not just about being a good parent. It's about doing all of these other things to make sure that she is um, affecting the right mold that she can live through because she's got this surveillance state that's going to crack down on her if she fails to live up to this, to the white culture's expectations of her. And it ultimately leads to exactly where the um, movie says it leads, which is that uh, her son sterilizes himself, right? He gets a vasectomy and he gets a vasectomy sort of symbolically so that he doesn't um, do upon others what has been done to his life, right? And sort of continue this cycle. And she makes this very great uh, sort of like classic point about how like that's exactly what the government wanted you to do. And like the the over under, the ultimate point is she's exactly right, right? Like the tragedy is that ultimately what welfare is and what it's trying to do is it's trying to destroy like the, the um, it's, it's trying to marginalize and uh, like further repress like black people and black culture and the, the, um, the disenfranchised, right. It's trying to perpetuate that. And she says something to the effect of like, and you did it to yourself. Right. And that is one of many uncomfortable scenes because of that honesty. And because these characters are so mad at each other and they're all right. Right. Like he wasn't necessarily wrong to do that. Like at least you can see his logic behind it. And it's like, it's sort of a, a great, terrible logic, but he's blaming the wrong people. And like when she attacks him for that, she's sort of blaming the wrong people, but she's blaming the only people she can. That that's another, that reflects the scene where she beats her daughter, her pregnant daughter, which I think is like definitely the hardest to watch scene in the entire movie. At least it was for me, but it's similar to that, right? It's like, you can understand why she's doing that and why she's 
right and why she's wrong all simultaneously. And it's because of this sort of sort of Damocles that's hanging over all of these people at all times, which is just that that in order to be alive, they have to pretend something impossible is something that is not impossible just to get by, you know? And I think that um, the movie is really unsparing in that, even in the script, which is what I was saying in the first place before I got sort of sidetracked. And that's why this like, there's this very interesting juxtaposition between honesty and uh, performance, right? Where like even her kids have to see through the bullshit. They're like literally too, too poor to afford bullshit, right? So they all talk to each other in this disarmingly honest, straightforward way where like the first thing that comes out of their mouths when she says she's going on a date is like, oh, we don't need any more kids around here. And it's like, whoa, like that's a terrible thing to say, but it's like, you you sort of start to the movie trains you to understand that communication style at least i think it does no i agree and that's where my comparisons to um wanda came from is that it's just a very like like you said often ugly but very honest depiction of of a, like a whole mode of living that has no like clean clear recourse in the case of um claudine i feel like it's got I feel like there's at least respite in knowing like when uh, Diane Carroll and James Earl Jones are both on screen and communicating, even when they're angry, even when they're like, there's the scene right after um, Roop has, uh, he's ha- he's having his wages garnished um, because of negligent treatment of his children who are off in another state, uh, you know, and new claims against his, um, you know, in terms of like childcare. Anyway, he's very frustrated and, you know, he's, his way of living is coming to a, to a close and he's like, insecure about his ability to really be with, with, uh, with Claudine. And he's just like raging. He's throwing food around the kitchen. He's like slamming down, um, you know, gin or whatever he's got. And just like, yes, it's uncomfortable. Yes. It feels true. All of that. But like, there's a certain speck of hope that like, you know, at least they're together, at least they're like communicating about it that then, I mean, of course is extinguished for a little while when he disappears, uh, on father's day and doesn't show up and, you know, sort of absconds with the rest of the plot. Um, but it is just like those moments of those added and real tension to it that I don't think exist in, um, you know, it doesn't flinch in its portrayal of those things. It's like, which leads me to, to the thought that maybe it's like, it almost feels transgressive against like black exploitation films, excuse me, not black exploitation right. films, but against, um, against audiences who expect maybe those tropes of black exploitation films is like, we're going to set up all the pieces, all the dominoes in the right place to like enact a black exploitation plot and have all those, you know, uh, fun plot beats. And then it just doesn't. And it sort of like leans into the discomfort of, of the reality of the condition. Um, I don't know that, that that's, what's going to make this movie really last for me. I think that's what makes it special. Uh, in addition of two, of course, of like, you know, wonderful performances and a stellar soundtrack, just like an all around really well-realized movie. Um, I know that we wanted to start ramping down here. I see Harry's hand is up. Uh, I'll let you take that last point, Harry, and then we'll go into the last thoughts. Yeah, this this can be my last point for sure, because I think that you said something really good, which is like the way that there is still that glimmer of hope. And we talked about this a little bit, but I think, again, to go back to if Beale Street could talk, it's sort of a similar thing there where it's just like the hope is in the fact that love still exists at all, right? Like in, in a system that is about breaking and punishing and training these people to be subservient, essentially, and that is exactly what the welfare state and what the child support state are doing to these people. Uh, it, the movie makes no bones about that. The fact that these people can be uncorruptible enough 
to still love their children who become, thanks to the state again, in albatross around their necks. The fact that they can still fall in love with each other, even though, again, thanks to the state, falling in love is a terrible disaster that you have to hide. Um, it means that like there there is something incorruptible about the human spirit and particularly about the, the black American um, – human spirit, right? Like that love is still possible and it still happens all the time, even though it is so punished and so, uh, looked down upon and, and made into something that is ugly. And even though these people are not, they're not immune to those effects, right? Like they, they become people who, who are angry with each other. There are times when Rupe and Claudine hate one another, right? And that's, that's sort of this, um, this specter that that hangs over their heads throughout this movie is that eventually they're going to come to hate each other as much as they ever loved each other, right? Like, Rupe even alludes to that one point. He's like, I'm afraid you're going to hate me someday. And she says, like, oh, I, I hate you now, right? And, like, similarly, there's this sense that, like, these all of Claudine's children are going to start to hate her, right? She has a very contentious relationship with her older kids. Her older kids are sort of defined by their defiance of her, of of how they're trying to establish themselves um, in opposition to sort of her life and her teachings uh, in, in fun, sort of like diametrically opposed ways, certainly, but um, nevertheless. And like, so there, there is this sort of like this tension that Aaron, you alluded to about the surveillance state that like eventually everything that was good is going to be taken from you and it's going to be twisted into this bad thing, right? Like Claudine's love for her children is going to become resentment because of the way that the state has made her children into this sort of factor of her life that she can't escape from. Claudine's love for Roop is going to become hate because of, again, the way that it is twisted and the way her power is taken from her and the way that instead of being something that is empowering and that is uh, fueling her self-determination, it is something that is preventing those things just as her kids are. And yet somehow, some way, we still find a way to love one another, right? Like these, these people, these incredible people, Claudine and Rupert, they still fall in love and like her children still love her and she still loves her children, even though it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense that you would do that, right? Because every, everything's against you, but there it is, right? That's just the way people are. That's just the way black Americans are, is that they're going to persist and they're going to continue to fall in love and they're going to continue to derive positive identities out of one another and through one another. And like, Yes, there is something like like deeply humanizing and um, uplifting about that, but just sort of like in the same formal sense as the movie itself, like you have to see both sides of that, right? Like you have to say, see that like, hey, like it's not good that this is happening. This is not in a more fati sort of situation. It's like it's awful that this is happening. People are getting through it anyway, but like you have to see both of that. You have to see how we've reduced the human condition to this and that the human condition is, is beautiful enough to persist anyway. Right. So like, I think you're right. I think holding those two things together is really where this movie lives. Um, and it's, it's a, it's a harrowing, but a really beautiful, um, place to see. Uh, well, okay. We are what, what, excuse me. We are at what I would consider the final, um, section of our actual discussion before getting into uh, everybody's favorite section of the show. Um, I, I have a couple last thoughts. I, uh, I wanted to point out that the car that, um, Roop drives into by accident when, uh, leaving his job after realizing that his wages are being garnished, uh, the one that his friend is driving, that is, I believe a Javelin AMX, the first car I ever owned, uh, based on that initial, like the front grill frame looks exactly like the car I used to own. 
uh, brings back memories. It's a good good sight to see. It's never really seen in movies that much because it was just a few years model. But um, and then I wanted to prompt Aaron for uh, to bring back a bit from our Wong Kar Wai series. Um, it was formerly known as the Aaron Grossman Wong Kar Wai Film Department Quality Index. I guess this would be the Aaron Grossman John Barry Film Department Quality Index. But I'll let you name it. Um, tell me what you thought. Give a rating to the <laughs> apartments seen in this movie. Roop. Uh, I remember Roops. I remember Claudine's. Yes. Roops, Claudine. I think those are kind of the two that you see. Uh, you know, I, I will say that uh, uh, putting a score to these apartments may seem a little unfair, as I think they are, you know, supposed to be, uh, uh, you know, somewhat representative of the uh, the lifestyles that these characters are forced to live, you know, they're, they're small, they're cramped. I think they're not necessarily bad spaces, but they're, they're certainly not suitable for, you know, a family of the size. And well, whatnot. I mean, I'm, I'm only um, asking you to judge and punch down more at people of ill condition. Um, I'll, I'll say that the apartments that? in this film do a great job of highlighting the, uh, uh, the failings of the modern welfare state to adequately provide for people who need it most in our society. Uh, and so in that manner, uh, the apartments are, are very good uh, to the um, the purpose of the film, so they I think they both get a get a passing grade. Uh, there is no cool neon shots, uh, you know, of of like falling rain and whatnot, like the Wong Kar Wai films. But uh, I think the these apartments serve their purpose, uh, so uh, they they get two big apartment thumbs up from Aaron, uh, and uh, uh, I also like the little mouse that's running around uh, Rube's apartment. It's kind of cute, so. He is until he's dead. Um, Cody and Harry, any final thoughts? Um, shout out to the combination of what I assume is a, a delivery of a bucket of fried chicken and wine that is an elite combination. And when I saw that on screen, I got uh, a mad hankering for mm-hmm. it. Uh, that made me so hungry. Um, so, yeah, good stuff. Uh, that's also the source of, of a very funny line, which is that uh, Claudine's daughter, in her sort of trademark, sassy, disrespectful way, when when Roop tells them that they're going to go on a nice date, she says, like, oh, you, you know that you're just going to go get fried chicken eventually, right? Um, in the end or something, she says. And then, like, later on, Claudette, Claudine comes home, and she's being evasive, uh, but her, one of her sons asks, what time did you get home? And uh, her daughter goes, 4 a.m., with chicken on her breath. Very, <laughs> very, very good line. Very funny. Um, I would like to shout out uh, Curtis Mayfield and Gladys Knight and the Pips, obviously. Um, I alluded to this in my Letterboxd review. Ugh. But um, I, I really love The Makings of You. That's like one of my favorite Curtis Mayfield songs. And it was like the orchestral score for this film. It's also like the the theme of that song is also a, a like it could have been written about Claudine for all I know it was although I think it it came out on Curtis which I believe preceded this uh, I think Curtis came out in 1970 but anyway uh, yeah Curtis Mayfield scored this movie Gladys Knight and the Pips um, performed it and performed all the music in it like what what are you even doing like why haven't you seen this movie had like what what more do you need I think that. Literally, the movie like starts with that. It says like Claudine, and then it says like music by Curtis Mayfield. And I was like the the WWF uh, meme where it was like I saw Curtis Mayfield, and I was like, oh shit! And then like the next uh, credit is uh, music performed by Gladys Knight and the Pips, and I was like, oh shit! And like it really is that good. So like check <laughs> it out over in your chair, yeah, exactly. Uh, 
Uh, I will say that song is also the uh, uh, the sample for the Kanye West and Jay-Z song, The Joy, which is one of my favorite uh, songs that the two have worked on together. Yeah, Kanye uh, did a lot of Curtis Mayfield songs to really yeah, get a ton of them. Yes, uh, Curtis Curtis Mayfield, uh, yes, is, is the sample for many a great hip-hop song, uh, if you want to go down that who sampled rabbit hole. Uh, but yes, uh, yes, soundtrack in this film is very good. Shout out to the soundtrack. Not shout out to the Rotten Tomatoes score of this movie. It's bullshit. It's somewhere in the 50s for the critics score. Proof again that critics are always wrong. Uh, but I think we need to segue into our final segment. Um, Harry, can you help me do that? I would love to, Jason. Our final segment is the segment that we like to call <gasps> Cody's Noties. Wow. Thank you, as always, fellas, for that uh, that revolutionary introduction. Uh, we're taking another trip to Trivia Town today, um, population to us, so that we can play a little something called Games Earl Jones. Uh, that's that's oh right. Oh my god, top notch chap. Somebody's got to fucking stop him. <laughs> uh, Oh boy, I can't keep getting away with it. Uh, but that's right. Given the opportunity we have after seeing him in the film Claudine today, we will be running through some James Earl Jones factoids. What I'll do is present each tidbit one at a time. After each statement, I will ask y'all in reverse alphabetical by first name order to respond. You'll get a point for every correct answer and the person with the most points at the end wins. As always, Trivia Mafia rules apply here, so use your noodles, not your Googles. With that, um, we can go ahead and jump in. We'll begin with uh, a pretty a pretty relatively straightforward question. Um, so going by IMDb credits, how many times has James Earl Jones been credited as Darth Vader in a work? This could be film work, it could be TV, it could be a random cameo. It could be anything for TV. I'll be counting the entire series as one credit. So not one credit per episode. So as far as IMDb credits go, how many times has James Earl Jones been credited as Darth Vader? Uh, Jason, I'm going to say 32, 32 says Jason. Okay. Harry, Uh, I'll say 21. Harry says 21 and Aaron says, Sorry, does this is this sorry if you already mentioned this? Does this include like video games? Anything credited on IMDb? I know they have some video games. Um, shit. Yeah. Oh, uh, I'll, Harry said twenty-one. I'll just go one. On, I'll just go twenty. Just a. It's got to be more than that, but I'll just do twenty. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, so going by IMDb, the number that I I went through, I double checked this multiple times, is eighteen credited appearances. As Darth Vader, yeah. uh, which puts Aaron Damn. closest. Now, uh, I guess um, Cody's misdirectees. Uh, this figure is muddied by a lot of uncredited appearances, um, which IMDb does like log sometimes. I'm sure there's a lot more floating out in the ether that are unaccounted for. Um, for example, James Earl Jones was apparently not officially credited as the voice of Darth Vader for uh, A New Hope or The Empire Strikes Back, yes. but was given official credit for Return of the Jedi. That's bonkers. What? Yeah, I believe I think I think it I could be wrong, but I think it had to do with the the crediting of only one actor for a part. I could be wrong, but I believe sure. the actor who did the the suit stuff got the yeah. credit, but I could be wrong. Right, the BP. Yeah. Um hey. Also while yeah, I'm on my soapbox, James Earl Jones should have been in the suit. I'm just gonna say it. In this should've, movie? Oh, yeah. Yeah. In, in in all movies, but especially in uh Return of the Jedi, yeah. Yeah. Uh, better movies, to be honest. Um, 
well, yeah, Aaron Aaron came away with the uh, came away with the point that that one fewer uh, um, strategy pays off as it uh, often I'm does. I'm usually the the victim of such a strategy as the mm-hmm. person who usually goes first due to alph- uh, you know alphabetical rules. So I will take it when I can use it. It's only fair. It is only fair. Um, as is uh, the case with number two, it's only fair that we stick with IMDb just for a little bit longer this time to talk a little bit about awards. So going by IMDb's metrics, James Earl Jones has been nominated for 58 different awards over the course of his career. Seems a little bit low, uh, IMO. Uh, but my question to you all is how many of those nominations were for a uh, performance as Darth Vader? So how many nominations out of 58 were nominations for a performance as Darth Vader, Jason? I'm going to go for uh, 32. 32, says Jason. Harry? 21. <laughs> Harry says 21. Aaron, what you got? Do it, do it, do it. What was the overall number of? 58. Uh, Jason's guess was? 32. 32. I'm going to go 33, although that's probably incorrect. It feels definitely between Harry and Jason's, but yeah, I'll go yeah, 33. Yeah, to be honest, I... I James Earl Jones has had a hell of a career. He's he's he has had a hell of a career. Star Wars is a hell of a popular, you know. Yeah, but you get Teen Choice Awards or something. I you know you know you get like greatest villain or some shit like that. Start racking them up. Racking them up. Um, somebody here is going to be racking up points. Uh, the total number of award nominations that James Earl Jones has received for a performance as Vader is five. Five what? out of fifty-eight. Uh, and honestly, uh, looking uh, looking through the awards tab of his profile made me appreciate just how diverse of a career he's had. He's um, obviously got some nominations for for acting. Um, we'll touch on a few of his bigger roles in a little bit. He's made a bunch of guest appearances on different TV shows. And there were a few nominations for his role in Claudine as well, which was very cool to see. Um, but Harry was closest there with his 21. Um <laughs> Shout out to Harry. Um, <laughs> but it doesn't feel like I earned the point necessarily, but I will take it. Thank you. Hey, hey um, yep. The the gods have bestowed upon you a point. Um, Aaron and Harry are not uh, tied at the top with one. We've got three more questions. It is still very much anybody's game. For number three, uh, we're going to spend a little time talking about some other awards, uh, specifically the EGOT, which stands for the Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony Awards, and... Uh, achieving the EGOT is how its Wikipedia page described it. So I'm just going to roll with it. It feels weird. Achieving the EGOT uh, refers to someone who has won all four of those awards. James Earl Jones is in a group of uh, four other artists who achieved the EGOT with at least one of the awards being non-competitive because he won an honorary Oscar in 2011. Um, but still, you know, uh, it, it's an EGOT. Um, I, I haven't achieved the EGOT, so that's pretty impressive for, for him. And uh, the other uh, 16 more formally recognized recognized EGOT honorees uh, who won them all in sort of competitive formats. Of the following people that I'm about to list, one of these, uh, one of them has not achieved the EGOT um, that of that group of 16. I'm going to list four. Which of these people has not achieved the EGOT? We've got Audrey Hepburn, we've got Cher, we've got Mel Brooks, and we've got Whoopi Goldberg. So which one of those is not an EGOT winner, Jason? Ooh, um, I'm going to go Mel Brooks. He's the ugliest. Uh, fair, and you're right, and he's right. Harry? Um, Audrey Hepburn. Audrey Hepburn and Aaron, what's your pick? Sorry, Harry sounded a little too confident in that answer. I feel like he's going to win. 
Maybe I should just do... You know what? No, I'm... I'm. Despite the fact that I could cheat this one, scam my way into at least a tie here, I am going to go for share, although that answer feels wrong. Again, but yeah, go and share. Mel Brooks has got to have it. You know, I'm just trying to... Yeah, uh, share. The the karmic gods have smiled down upon Aaron, who presumably did not cheat, because he guessed correct. Uh, the answer is That's indeed right. share. She, she is just missing a Tony Award. She has the three others. Um, Audrey Hepburn, oh, wow. Mel Brooks, and Whoopi Goldberg are all legit egotters. Wow. Egotters. Um, ego. She's got a big ego. Me, me, me. I, I like before before recording. I uh, I achieved the egot. Uh, you know, back in the bathroom, if you know what I mean. No, I don't know. I don't know what you mean. No one knows what you mean. What's the next question, Cody? Well, this is fun. thank you. This is fun. A great segue, Jason. Uh, for our fourth and second to last question, similar to what we've done in previous games, I'm going to read off three quotes allegedly uttered by James Earl Jones. Two of these utterances will be for real, again, allegedly, and one will be fake. Your task is to pick out the fake one, so I'll read off the three quotes and leave it to each of you to pick out the imposter afterward, starting with the first quote. If an actor's nightmare is being on stage in his underwear and not knowing his lines, what the heck do you call this? So that was the first one. Second quote. The world is filled with violence. Because criminals carry guns, we decent, law-abiding citizens should also have guns. Otherwise, they will win and the decent people will lose. So that was the second quote. The third quote. When I read that part in the script where it said, Luke, I'm your father, I thought, he's lying. I have to see how they carry this lie out. So those are the three. Which one of those is the imposter quote, Jason? God, I hope it's the second one. I'm going to vote with my hope and say that it's quote number two. Quote number poo uh, for Jason. Harry, which one do you pick? Well, I, w- I would like to say in, in the context of um, being a black person in America, that quote has a very different weight to it because there, there, are, so. there are legitimate reasons why a black person should want to have a gun, primarily that the cops are trying to kill them and are not interested in helping them and that they have to depend on themselves. So there's a whole that that's a very complicated issue in gun control. Uh, but I think that the one that is fake is so I, I'm saying all of that because I am not going to choose two and I don't want to be uh, attacked. Right. Uh, I think I'm going to go with um, one. That sounds like the one that is like maybe similar to what he said, but not exactly the same. And I know that that's a favorite of Cody's, so that's it. Mm. I contain multitudes for what it's worth. Uh, Aaron, what is your guess? What was the what was the first one again? Could you give me the old repeat? Yeah, yeah, the old repeat, the classic repeat. Uh, if an actor's nightmare is being on stage in his underwear and not knowing his lines, what the heck do you call this? Hmm. Um, I am also going to go for one. Yeah, I'm going to go for one. Yeah, I'm thinking he's going to go for one. It was indeed one. Um, I only stumped one of y'all this time. The actual alleged quote is as follows. If an actor's nightmare is being on stage buck naked and not knowing his lines, what the heck do you call this? So that's that's how that one actually shook out. Is Greensboro Jones naked on stage for a uh, performance? Is that what that is alluding to? Yeah, uh, yeah he, he was in the... Daniel Radcliffe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah damn it! <laughs> took that right up from under me. Yeah, you deserve it. Sorry. What was what was the no. name of that one again? Equus. Equus. Yeah. E Q U U S something that, or other. Is that the one that James Earl Jones was naked for, or the one that didn't Daniel, Rag- Daniel Radcliffe was, was hanging hang dong alongside a horse? Hey, I don't care. Uh, what was the one that James Earl Jones was naked for? 
do not do not care about the uh, the Dan and Radcliffe one. Very actually, it was, one. it was it was it was actually Star Wars. Just in the booth, he was buck ass naked, standing there, surrounded by um, audio. The vulnerability of his performance. Yep. Sure, they didn't want sense. they didn't want his clothing absorbing any of the sound waves around him. So, an absolute king. Uh, and honestly, uh, hey, uh, still anybody's game at this point. As we head into our final question. Um, which uh it I is, we it try is something. at best everybody's game <laughs> hey uh for this one we're going to try something a little different what i'm going to ask each of y'all to do is rank a few james earl jones films in order of most to least popular um to measure film popularity we're going to go by number of letterboxed entries you will get a point for each correctly slotted film and there will be four films total in the mix so for what means for the scoreboard uh, we've got aaron in the lead with three harry with two jason um with a, a, a beautiful ellipse um but we've got four points still on the table apiece for everybody so you, if you get the order perfectly correct as an example you get four points if two of the films are slotted into the right places you'll get two points etc um with that I will now read the list of films y'all are trying to rank from most to least popular, and then I will just keep talking um, <laughs> to give you all some time to think about it. So the movies are The Lion King, 1994, The Lion King, 2019, The Sandlot from 1993, for what it's worth, and Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith from 2005. So again, we're ranking the four of those uh, in order from most to least popular, um, if Jason wants to put some like thinking game show music, like the Jeopardy music behind this, um, probably not that one because we'll get sued. But if he did want to put something in here, he could. He certainly doesn't have to. I'm just going to talk for a little this bit longer. This is done, uh, a clarification, this is done, I know you mentioned this is done based purely on number of reviews. L- number of letterboxed entries. So like... You know, an entry on Letterboxd means it means just uh, flag it as watched. There could be a review uh, component for it. Uh, there could be any of that, you know, other Letterboxd nonsense. But it's basically the number of people on Letterboxd, my understanding anyway, who have marked that they have watched this movie. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does change my answer. Yeah, it also, does. Congrats. This is a very, like, rich question because, one, like, Letterboxd is a very particular type of data, right? Because, mm-hmm. like... Letterbox users are very particular. And then also the watched thing really throws me off, right? Because if it was reviews, I would feel pretty confident about my answer. I but think a just, lot of people just log stuff they've seen. Yeah. 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 Uh, also, I, I mean, I, I feel like it's in our imaginary contract to mention Letterboxd at least once per episode uh, to get that uh, sponsor, sponsorship that. money. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. You shouted out your Letterboxd review. Hey, y'all, follow Harry on Letterboxd. Nah, don't do that. It's bad. But you follow, know. follow him. All right. I think I think we've all been given, uh, I'll just say, an amount of time uh, in which to figure this out. So I, I will kick it to you first, Jason. Uh, do you have an order for me? I have an order. Um, let me get uh, Sandlot one. Last, or excuse me, The Lion King two. Sorry, not the 2019 version, the Disney version. Well, mm-hmm. the original Disney version. God, I hate fucking movies. Yeah. Uh, episode three at three, and The Lion King 2019 at number four. Gotcha. And I'm doing math as I go here, so that I can. Okay. All right. Thank you for your order, Jason. And Harry, if you want to now read yours off at a similar pace that uh, Jason did because my brain is very slow today. 
Yeah. Um, okay. This is, I'm not at all confident, right? But like, this is a, it was a real process to come up with this. I think that Sandlot will be number four, the least watched, um, which I know Jason put it at number one. We're, we're going in from most to least popular, oh, if, if you could please hurry. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Um, Star Wars episode three, I said was the most. So number mm-hmm. one, number two is the original Lion King. Number three is Lion King 2019. And number four is the Sandlot. Gotcha. Thank you very much. Um, I got those down. And Aaron, for your order. <sighs> Second guessing myself, but I am going to do similar to Harry, but a little bit reversed. I'm going to do Lion King 1994's the most. Going to do Star Wars Episode 3 is number two. And then Lion King 2019 and the Sandlot. Gotcha. All right, folks, it's been it's been quite a journey. Uh, I will now offer the correct, uh, quote-unquote, correct order of popularity. Uh, again, going by number of letterboxed entries. And that order as follows is The Lion King, 1994, as the most popular of the group, followed by Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith, followed by The Lion King, 2019, followed Let's by The which brings us to a, a final score. Um, uh, Jason, I'm so sorry. Harry um, coming away with four points. And Aaron clinching that last round, a perfect run, a four out of four for the round. He ends up with seven points. Has um, there ever been a fucking annihilation this hardcore? Do you know how hard it is to rank? Alex Garland directed what? it, for what it's worth. Okay, so we can wrap this up, guys. guys. I think we should. Uh, wrap this up. Yeah, <clears throat> I didn't mean. To, I didn't mean to cut. You should pop off. I'm only going to say thanks, everyone, for indulging uh, some some games, Earl Jones, today. Um, Aaron, what else do you have to say about your your victory today? No, I just uh, you know, look, I you know, over you know the last what two years plus that we've been doing this podcast, you know, there's been a lot of winners and losers here, but I think there's there's a general trend. Uh, you know, that, that has been pretty solid, I think, over the course of time during Cody's Noties quiz, quiz uh, segments. Uh, I will say that I did did my, trust my gut to change up at the very last minute. I was originally going to say that Lion King 2019 was on top because I was like, it's more recent. There's got to be more. But then when you said the thing about just general logging, I was like, I think that I think that Lion King and Star Wars Episode 3 have got to be above it just for people marking that they've seen it and whatnot. So anyway, that was my thought process. Uh, you know, Harry, uh, valiant effort. Jason, happy to happy to be on the episode with you. And uh, yeah, it, uh, <clears throat> oh, it feels good. I'm going to kill him. This has been our episode about Claudine, a 1974 film. It is on the Criterion Collection. I forget if it's on the channel right now. It is It is not streaming or rentable anywhere, which is a supreme travesty. I'm looking at you, um, corporations. But yes, it is. it does have a Criterion release, uh, relatively recent. And uh, Criterion... <laughs> plugging criterion collection uh shopping at uh barnes and noble for the month of july uh all criterion releases are 50 percent off so not going through the criterion's website or anything like that if you purchase them through the barnes and noble website or in stores crit- uh, criterion titles are 50 percent off um i will be mighty tempted to pick this up again i could see myself rewatching it and owning it on physical media um sorry to to user you jason please continue no, that was much more informative than I could ever be. I was thinking about picking up one myself. 
But our podcast is called Try Love. You can find us on Twitter at Try Love Podcast. You can find the Trilon Cinema uh, in South Minneapolis. And at Trilon.org, you can get tickets to movies playing there. There are a whole bunch of cool series and one-offs coming soon. Uh, unfortunately, the Horathon for um, uh, later this week, or whenever that is, is sold out. Uh, I did not get a ticket, so you'll have to go without me. But uh, I hope you enjoy it if you did get one. My name is Jason Daphnis. You can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I've been Cody Narvis, and you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Uh, I've been Harry Mack, and you can find me on Twitter at Chitake Harry. I've been Aaron, and you can find me, uh, based on the performance of Cody's notice here, you can find me on Jeopardy soon, so look out for that. Uh, winning Jeopardy, uh, and uh, find me on your TV set. Uh, bye. Suppose I do not marry this lady. Now, if I move in with her and do not tell you, then we're both crooks, right? But if I do tell you, then we're back to the income and the outcome and the and the deducting and you drive me to drink and you call it fraud if I spend $7 for a bottle of whiskey. Come on, Claudine. Let's get out of here. You can't win. You understand? Fraud. 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 It's been a miracle for what you've done. Please stay right by my side Two can be one The righteous way to go Little one would know Or believe if I told them so You're second to me Love of all Should reflect some sign of the words I've tried to recite. They're close but not quite. Almost impossible to do. Describing the makings of you.